So you can turn with me your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. As we continue our studies in the book of Mark, at least five more sermons, maybe a little bit more. So we're coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, for the summer, we might just do some sort of topical series. I figured I'd take the text that everybody uses for various things and they rip it out of context. So I think that'd be kind of fun to do. The, we'll call it context, 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 just to deal with all the um, misinterpretation of the scriptures. So um, we might do that and then we'll move into another book in, this, in the fall as well. I haven't decided what we'll do yet, but if you have any suggestions, please let me know. In any case, Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at verse 29 through 32 this morning. But I will begin reading at verse 21 to set the context for us. Verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place called Gotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, he saved others, himself he cannot save, that the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who are crucified with him reviled him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh God, we are thankful for your love. Thank you that you are love itself, but we're thankful that we see your love manifested towards us as you reveal yourself to us, finite creatures, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we did not love you, but you first loved us and sent forth your Son to be that propitiation for us. We do not fully understand, O oh God, or grasp the magnitude of what Christ did here. But we know, O oh God, that when we see by faith that it is a gift that you do give. And so we pray, O oh God, because of your mercy and because of your goodness, help us to see our Christ in all his glory. Help us to see our Christ in all his suffering. Help us to see our Christ as the king who reigns supreme, but a king who humbled himself to die on behalf of undeserving people. We know that our sins deserve everlasting punishment. We know that the wicked thoughts we've engaged in deserve everlasting death. We're thankful because of what Christ did, because of his atoning sacrifice, because of his atoning work, because of his dying on that cross. He saved his people from their sins. And thank you, O oh God, that you saved many of us here today. And we pray that if there are any here today who are not saved, we pray that you would do so. Show them their sin and show them the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Show them their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray, we pray, O oh God, that you give them the gift of faith, that they might believe the truth of the gospel. And we pray for us, your people, those you have saved. We pray, O oh God, you'd help us to always walk day by day with that cross before our eyes. Help us to walk day by day by looking to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And help us not to take for granted the reality that we dwell with you in a special way, that we commune with you in a special way, O oh God, as we come before you. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness towards us. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, when someone goes to vote for a certain leader, most of the time we don't always look at the substance of the character or the substance of the platform. We a lot of times look at the outward effects, how they sound, how they look, how they perhaps speak. I know I do that as well. I don't read the platforms as much as I I just kind of go, hey, that guy sounds good. Let's vote for this guy instead. And most people are like that. And the people of Israel were like that when it came to King Saul and King David. King Saul was mighty. King Saul was tall. King Saul was good looking. King David, not that he wasn't good looking, but King David wasn't the one that they chose. What were they would think of? Even Samuel, when he goes to pick the next king, he sees David's older brothers. He's like, it has to be that guy. He's, you know, mighty and jacked and has giant biceps. It's got to be him. So a lot of the times we think with our eyes rather than thinking with faith. A lot of the times we don't see what God is doing because our minds are clouded with what is really taking place. And this is certainly true with our Lord Jesus Christ. This is certainly true of him as he hangs upon that cross, and especially for the people of the Roman Empire, whether Jew or Gentile. They would have, not, would have not pegged one condemned and punished like this to be Christ, to be the deliverer, to be the king. They would have thought that one must be truly condemned. That, must, that one must have actually died. How can he be the deliverer of his people? That's the problem of man, isn't it? We like to think our ways instead of God's ways. We think with our sinful perception that clouds what is really going on and clouds what one really needs. And brother, we need salvation not just from this life or not just from things of this life. We need salvation from our sins. And that's what Mark is wanting us to see as he continues to answer the question, who is Jesus? And he has been the last several verses, last several sections, pointing to the fact that Jesus is a king and seeing what kind of king he really is, what kind of leader he truly is. He is a silent king who is falsely accused, yet still bears the, the brunt of the, the, the reviling against him and the false witness. He takes the place of a killer, the just for the unjust. He is a king who suffers, a king who humbles himself, and also a king who is ridiculed, which is what we see more today. I know we've seen it already, but it comes up again in verses 29 through 32. And much like we've already seen in Mark's gospel, there's a lot of irony going on. And the ironic thing about the words of these blasphemers is that what the king is ridiculed for is exactly how the king saves. They're mocking, they're reviling, they know not what they say. And the problem I think is very clear how ignorant Sinful people blaspheme what they don't know. How ignorant and sinful people blaspheme and ridicule God. Shows how the wickedness, sinfulness, badness of man manifests in so many different ways. Even in the blasphemy and ridicule of the king by the Gentiles, but also the blasphemy and ridicule of the king by commoners, by chief priests of Israel, and by criminals as well. All sorts hate God. There is no discrimination. Without being saved by him, because of our sin, we truly hate him. And the irony again is they know not what they say. And the mystery really is how God can teach us about his salvation through the ridicule of the king that we see here in verses 29 through 32. So Mark wants us to see in these verses how Christ saves. 
how Christ gives new life, how Christ is bringing deliverance for his people. And he wants us to see that, ironically, through the reviling of these people. He wants us to see it on the lips of these ones who would mock him. And even as they mock him, even though they don't believe, they speak truth about him that Mark wants us to see. So he wants us to see how Christ saves. And so we'll answer that question. How does Jesus save? And we'll answer this question under two headings. First of all, he saves by destroying the temple, verses 29 and 30. And secondly, he saves by dying as the Christ. So he saves by destroying the temple, verses 29 through 30. And he saves by dying as the Christ, verses 31 and 32. So let's first look at how he saves by destroying the temple in verses 29 and 30. And notice we see the people here blaspheming the very temple itself. And again, this is in the context of the crucifixion. Jesus is suffering the most painful death that there was at this time, mainly by suffocation as he hangs upon that cross reserved for the worst of criminals, reserved for the worst of people in society, reserved for terrorists in a lot of ways who would die upon that tree. And uh, we can see here, even in verse 29, in those who pass by, that is, they would hang the cross on the road as people would walk by and see and think twice before they engaged in that very thing that the accused were being punished for. So it causes them to stop and consider and think. So much shame involved. Much shame and sorrow involved. And while certainly the physical aspect is there, Mark is emphasizing the shame and the ridicule. Mark is emphasizing the, 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 the mocking that he endures as the king upon that cross. And so notice verse 29. And those who passed by, perhaps commoners, perhaps it could be persons who are part of the Sanhedrin, perhaps it could be those who are court attendants, Perhaps it could have been those who were there at that show trial in Mark 14. Or perhaps they just heard what Jesus said as he was leaving the temple in Mark 13. But in any case, they walk by and they blaspheme. They walk by and they are smug. They walk by and they are arrogant and haughty towards this one. And we see this both in their conduct and their gestures, but also in their words. Notice, those who passed by blasphemed him. Now, blasphemy can just mean, generally, speaking ill of someone. But most of the time in the Bible, it refers to speaking ill of God, to reviling against God, to blaspheming and mocking God. And so, again, there's some irony going on here, isn't there? They're mocking God, yeah, but the irony is Christ is being crucified for claiming to be God. He is the one on trial for blasphemy, according to the Jewish law. And yet here they are. They're blaspheming him, the Lord of glory, who truly is God, who truly is Yahweh, who truly is the Christ. And look exactly what they're doing. They're doing exactly what they charged him or he was charged for. So they blaspheme him. And notice again, by their conduct or gestures and by what they say. Notice wagging their heads shaking their heads in disbelief, shaking their heads with disgust and scorn. Unfortunately, I do this a lot of the time when people cut me off along the road. If someone really cuts me off and I have to slow down and there's two lanes, I pull over to the left lane. I drive slowly and I look at that person for a few minutes. Maybe I don't shake my head, but I am shaking it in my mind in disgust. 
We all do sorts of things like that. Unfortunately, we're terrible and awful people, and that's why we need Christ to die on the cross for us. But we do such things. Now, this is much worse. This is much terrible than, you know, being cut off on the road. That's how, you know, cynical and how petty I am. But in any case, it is much worse what he deals with, wagging their heads, shaking at it in disbelief. They're ready to kick someone when he is, when he is down. And this does allude back to Psalm 22. I said Psalm 22 was important. We alluded to it last week uh, when it says his garments were divided. It will be explicitly quoted next week when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22 is about the righteous sufferer, the one who was innocent, but yet still suffers. Isn't that an enigma? Isn't that a conundrum? Why is it that the righteous and the innocent suffer? Now, Jesus truly is righteous in every way. The, truly want, the only one who can truly say he was innocent in every way. Yet sometimes people in general suffer unjustly. And so David is suffering unjustly here at the hands, likely, of the people of Israel. And we see uh, in verse, um, excuse me, verses six through eight. But I am a worm and a no man a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake their head. Same word that's used there. They shake their heads in disbelief. They shake their heads in a mocking fashion. We see this in Psalm 69. We see this in Psalm 109 as well. And we're going to quote another uh, place in the Bible in just a little bit. But in any case, we see there that they shake their head. And we people do this all the time. And they shouldn't be surprised when it happens to our Lord. And verse 8, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And that's exactly what they say in verse 30 or verse 29. Don't, uh, continue back, continuing back in Mark 15. Mark 15, 29, wagging their heads and saying, aha, people do that as well. I gotcha. Aha. A joyful expression, a joyful scorn, a joyful yay. They're getting what they deserve. That's the language there with that aha. And so notice what they say. They think they got him. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days. That's the content of their blasphemy. That's the content of their ridicule. And what they're saying there, though, is absolutely true. He is going to destroy the temple, and he is going to rebuild it in three days. Now, this was mentioned in Mark 14, 57. That was one of the false witnesses against him. I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. So in Mark 14, they're distinguishing there between an earthly temple and a heavenly temple. And this helps us to understand Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, which is what I believe refers to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And remember, as Jesus is leaving the temple, he says this very thing. I'll see all these stones. It will be raised to the ground. I will destroy it. I will remove it. The disciples were like, wow, look at this temple. He's like, it's going to be destroyed. They were enamored with the earthly. They were enamored with the things that they could see. Israel treated the temple like an idol, when in reality, the true temple had come. And what the true temple is doing, who is Jesus Christ, what he is doing is he's doing away with the old and bringing in the new. 
that's the point of Mark 13 with all of the differing things and things that are hard to understand. That's its point. It gives us the theological background and theological explanation for everything that's taking place here. Why is he dying? Why is he on trial? Why is he going through the suffering? He is doing away with the old and bringing in the new. The temple made with hands will pass away. The temple made without hands shall abide forever. And remember the temple for the old covenant people was a good thing. It was meant to be a sign of God's communion with them. But they abused it. They, they treated it poorly. They did not approach unto him. We need a greater temple, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. The old is passing away and the new is being ratified. So, and that's certainly something the reader is meant to glean when we see this blasphemy in verse 29. So it's amazing. Even there, there's theology. Even in the ridicule, even in the mocking, there is theology that we see in verse 29. But perhaps there's some more irony going on here. In Lamentations 2.15, and Lamentations is all about the destruction of the first temple, isn't it? And in Lamentations, it's all about, you know, wailing over the loss of the city, the loss of the temple. And in 2.15, it speaks about how the enemies will pass by Israel and shake their head. Same word that is used here, same word that is used in Psalm 22. Same word is used in Psalm 69. Same word is used in Psalm 109. So the question really is, who will be humiliated? Who is the one who will really be wrong in all of this? Who is the one who will actually have the temple destroyed? The old is passing away, but the new remains forever. The old is obsolete, but the new shall not cease. To exist, and that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark again is much more subtle with this, with the with the with the words of the false witness, with the words of the blasphemer, alluding back, you know, really explaining Mark thirteen in those two verses. That's it's right there. There's our key, if you will. I'm not trying to sound dispensational, but there's the key, if you will, to understanding Mark thirteen based on what we see. Temple made with hands destroyed. Temple made without hands continues forever and it's in the body of the lord jesus christ isn't it john is very clear with this john says this explicitly in john chapter 2 the disciples don't get it when he says it to them they eventually get it later on but you see the highlights there he's talking about his body and then in mark 14 37 and 38 when jesus dies which we'll see next week the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom Christ is our temple. Christ is our dwelling. And the only reason that the, the benefit and privilege that you and I have is we get to call upon God wherever we are. Call upon God in our house. It's still important to gather and call upon him together with the people, with the saints of God. But it's a blessing that Christ is that temple. Christ is that tabernacle. That word became flesh who dwelt among us. So they are saying and mocking him, you said you would destroy the temple. Now look at you. What they don't understand is him by dying on that cross, he's doing away with the old and bringing in the new. But then they also say, verse 30, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
people always want salvation on their terms, don't they? People want to have some sort of contribution. We all want to feel like we're contributing in some way. That's why every religion other than Christianity says you must earn it. <laughs> you must do this. You must have tip the scales in one way. You must get rid of desires so that you become, you know, nothing. That's what Buddhism teaches, you know, reincarnation until you finally cease desiring and then boom, you're nothingness. That's what the goal in Buddhism is. Being one with Brahmin, Hinduism, they all teach some sort of way, some sort of way in which man contributes to that salvation. Christianity is different than all of them. It is Christ who earned the way and you believe upon him. You believe that he lived, died and rose again because in your sin, you could not. In your own personal righteousness, you could not. Because our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. That's why we need a righteousness, not our own, that comes from somebody else, that comes from outside of us, that is then given to us in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice a lot of people, too, in general, assume that saving life is primarily this world. They were only thinking in this world terms. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, Israel wanted someone who would come and deliver them from the oppression that they're under in Rome. Yes, they perhaps some had some eschatological, you know, new creation type aspect with that, but they didn't understand what that fully meant. So again, they're still thinking with, the, with their eyes, thinking with what they see. And even the people walking by are thinking with what they see. And their assumption is if he cannot save himself, how will he save others? If he cannot come down from that cross, how does he expect to bring anybody else into salvation? Again, we think in this world type of term, uh, uh, terms, even doctors. And I know doctors are important and they have their place. And I appreciate doctors, but doctors only prolong life, don't they? And we praise God they save in that sense, but doctors only prolong life. Eventually, death comes to us all. But in Christ Jesus, though you die, you shall have everlasting life. Though you pass, you shall have everlasting hope in him. There's only one who can give you everlasting life, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who suffered on that cross. He is the one who was ridiculed. Save yourself and come down from that cross. How then could he save others? Now, both of our applications are not really about us today, but focus on what Christ has done for us. And notice how we see Christ save that we might dwell, that we might have communion with God. Now, God is everywhere present, isn't he? It just depends on your status before him, how he dwells with you in a certain way. If you're not in Christ, his wrath is against you at this time. His anger is against you at this time. You know, it might not feel it, but it is absolutely true, according to Ephesians chapter 2. But if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, that status has changed. You're forgiven in what Christ has done. The wrath of God is poured out upon Christ instead of you. And you have communion with God in a special way. The communion of God that was broken when Adam sinned. The communion of God that was incomplete with the temple communion of God that is full in Christ, yet it's still longing for its fullness when we see Christ as he is. 
Brethren, it is a special privilege of the people of God to gather. To gather, to pray to him, to hear him. God dwells with us in Christ, John 1. He dwells with us by the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 1. He dwells with us day by day. We don't always feel it, though. We don't always feel like he's near. But that's the beauty of the scriptures. If we don't feel like he's near, the scriptures remain true. And he is with you day by day. He is with you moment by moment if you are in him. And he dwells with us in his house as he builds his temple. He is the head. We are the body. And that's the language in Ephesians chapter 2. Bring a Jew and Gentile together to build the household of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the blessing is we gather together as the people and gather before God. That's why we have to enter in with reverence and awe, enter in with a recognition he is God and we are man, but also delight in that as well. Rejoice with trembling. We have a temple made without hands in him, and he's saved that we might commune with him and commune with him forever. So Christ saves by destroying the old temple and bringing in the new. Secondly, Christ also saves by dying as the Christ, verses 31 and 32. We see the chief priests this time. They're the ones mocking. Verse 31. The chief priests have hated Jesus since the Galilean ministry. I mean, we've seen that hatred fester and build. So it's like a giant pus ball within them. So they, are, they want to kill him. And so they have got their desire. And a lot of the ways what they're doing in verses 31 and 32 is congratulating themselves. We did it. We got that heretic killed. We got that one on that cross. We got him there. So notice what they say. The chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes. Again, this shouldn't surprise us based upon their plotting and planning throughout the book. He saved others. He himself, he cannot save. Again, they're saying exactly what those passers-by have said. That's the emphasis of Mark here, isn't it? I mean, the key emphasis in these two sections we've looked at, crucified and saved. It's like he's trying to tell us something. How does he save? But by crucifixion. How does he save? But by dying. How does he save? But by suffering. Yet they don't understand that, do they? How can he save others if he cannot save himself? Again, this is how the world thinks. The world thinks with eyes rather than with the ways of God. That's when God, by his spirit, to show us such things. We think there are some polished people in the world. I think there are people who have it put together. If anybody's going to get to heaven, it's going to be those people. Even if you ask people on the street, say, are you going to get into heaven? They'll say, yeah. And you say, why? I haven't stolen anything or I haven't murdered anybody and I haven't done any of that sort of thing. Well, yeah, then you have to point out that anger is also a violation of the sixth commandment. And, you know, maybe you haven't stolen things, but you've probably been lazy in a lot of times with your employer. That's enough to you know, damn someone to everlasting punishment forever. That's why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. But we always look at people and assume, and there was one who was the rich young ruler. Man, he was the guy who had it put together. If he was the one to pick to be a disciple, boy, it would be him. If I was going to vote for someone, maybe it would have been this guy. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Mark 10. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. 
you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Then he probes a little further, one thing you lack, go and sell whatever you have. And he went away sad and sorrowful for he had many possessions. And Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples say in verse 26, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. God takes the worst sinners, removes hearts of stone, gives hearts of flesh, and gives new life. Shows them their sinfulness, that pressure of that weighing down. Shows them who Christ is, that they might believe that he is the son of God. And believe in what he has done. Believe that there is forgiveness in him. Believe that he lived, died, and rose again. Only God can bring about that work in the life of a sinner. And thankfully, God is pleased to do such things. So again, the irony is, save others, he cannot save himself. It is by his dying that he saved. That's his purpose for coming, 1 Timothy 1.15. But this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he is pleased to give life to sinners. France says, it is precisely because he does not come down from the cross that the mockery will prove in time to have missed the mark. If he had saved himself, he could not have saved others. His life and mission was not one of self-preservation, but selfless giving. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the mocking continues, verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. That is, they want to see before they believe, but they want to believe by sight rather than by faith. Peter has a good commentary on this in 1 Peter 1, where he does say, you do not see him, yet you love him. Where he talks about how you have not seen him like we have, but you believe in him. You do not see him, yet you love him. See, faith is apprehending, accepting, resting, receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he lived, died, and rose again, believing these things to be true. And if you believe upon him, you shall have everlasting life. Faith is apprehending what is true. Jesus confessed who he was in 1462. I am, and you will see the son of man uh, coming on the, sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. But they do not confess. They do not confess who he is. Will you? They don't believe he's the son of God. Do you? That's what Mark wants us to see. That's what Mark wants us to look at. That's what Mark wants us to do. He wants us to believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, unbelievers always make this argument. If only if I see, then I'll believe. If I see, you know, this stand levitate, if I see someone rise from the dead, then I will believe. And what I would say to that is absolutely not. You wouldn't. 
because our hearts are so clouded, we need the miracle of a changed heart. Even the, the, the Pharisees, even the scribes. Remember in Mark chapter 3, they were waiting for Jesus to heal. They were waiting for Jesus to perform a miracle, to catch him in the act. They weren't going to believe. They weren't going to go, wow, look at that. He healed someone. He healed someone and they all went, we got him. You should not you know, do the work on the Sabbath. We got you there. You would not believe if a, you would not believe a flying pig if it flew before your face and point right in your nose. You wouldn't believe that at all. Unless God helped you to see that it's actually a flying pig. The same thing is true. Christ obviously is not a pig, dear brethren. You know, flying pig is just a fun analogy. But you wouldn't believe on Christ if he was standing right before you. You need God to work and to save. And if you're an unbeliever, I still implore you and you know, call you to believe. But I pray that God helps you to see who he is and what he has done for his people. Because demanding a sign is a sign of unbelief. He says that in Mark chapter 8. You need a sign you do not believe. Believe in who he is and what he has done. Not saying there isn't good evidence for him. Not saying there isn't truth. You know, the, the four gospels, the, 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 the Bible as it unfolds, the inscripturation of it. You believe a lot of other things, by the way, that have much more scant historical record than what we have with the gospels and with the Bible. But again, you need the work of God. It's a supernatural work to see that Jesus is the son of God, and they do not. Verse 32, let the Christ, the king of Israel. The irony continues. They are clearly being sarcastic with what they say here. They're clearly mocking him. But Mark is the only one who emphasizes the Christ aspect. Certainly that is implied. Certainly that uh, there is some of that maybe in, in Luke as well, but not on the lips of the chief priests. Let the Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It refers to his title as the deliverer, as the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament who would come and deliver his people. At the beginning of the gospel, he says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's what Mark is, the question Mark is answering for us. Who is he? Jesus is the deliverer promised in the old. He is fulfilling it in the new. He is the king who reigns supreme. Believe upon him. Confess that he is the son of God. The chief priests confess it or wouldn't confess it. The irony is it's still inscripturated for us all on their lips. Isn't that wonderful poetic justice? That on the lips of the chief priests, they're mocking, they're reviling, but we see the truth. The Christ, the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may believe and see. They unwittingly teach who he is. They unknowingly teach who he is. They teach that he is Christ. They teach that he is king, that he is the king of Israel. They teach them the language of Israel there. Perhaps the difference between king of Israel and king of the Jews is the Gentiles would have referred to him as the king of the Jews. The Israelites would have said king of Israel, but it's a mocking term. But is not Christ the king? Is, not, is he not David's greater son who brings deliverance? Is he not, even as blind Bartimaeus cried out, son of David, son of David, have mercy upon me. In all the reviling, in all of the mocking, 
in a king, in a one who is on that cross, battered, bloodied, and bruised. It is the king, and it is the Christ, and it is how he brings salvation to undeserving people. Israel sought deliverance from Rome, but Christ brings deliverance from sin. And the people mocked. And people here probably still mock today. They ridicule, they mock, they wag their heads. Maybe not quite like this, but we still do. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. All sorts mock him. And that's the emphasis of the latter section, the latter uh, sentence there in verse 32. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. All sorts mock the high king of heaven. There is no discrimination. Now, there is a silver lining with those who mocked, but that's in Luke's gospel. The thief on the cross probably started by mocking and reviling. And as those three hours unfolded, God saved his soul. That he might look upon the king on that tree and believe. That's why Ryle calls the thief Christ's greatest trophy. One who didn't have all the scriptures, one who didn't have it all in his head, one who was a terrorist, and yet there he is, the battered, bloodied, and bruised Savior, and he believes. Lord, uh, bring me with you into your kingdom, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't our Christ so loving to die in this way? Isn't God's plan so mysterious, yet so wise? And that to bring about salvation for sin, it comes with one who sacrifices. Because the wages of sin is death, isn't it? And it requires death to pay the penalty. It requires death to pay the debt. It requires death and what, uh, for uh, God to be satisfied and rightly satisfied as a righteous God. Yet you're either going to have it satisfied in your own sin forever satisfied in Jesus Christ who forgives sins. We have dwelling with God because of his sacrifice and atonement, because of his love, because of his standing in our stead. We need someone to die so that though we die, we may have life. And if you wish to have eternal life, he must die. And he must die in this way. So that the wrath of God would be poured about, out upon him instead of you. Ryle says, finally, let us leave the passage with the deepest sense of Christ's unutterable love to our souls. Let us remember what we are, corrupt, evil, and miserable sinners. Let us remember who the Lord Jesus is, the eternal son of God, the maker of all things. And let us remember that for our sakes, Jesus voluntarily endured the most painful, horrible, and disgraceful death. Surely the thought of this love should constrain us daily to live, not only to ourselves, but unto Christ. It should make us ready and willing to present our bodies a living sacrifice to him who loved and died for us. Let the cross of Christ be often before our minds. Rightly understood, no object in all Christianity is so likely to have a sanctifying as well as a comforting effect on all of our souls. Behold what manner of love that we see here how we see the father's love and that he sent forth his son to die for us. We did not love God, but he first loved us. And he wants us to see the love of God 
in the king. Brethren, behold your king who hangs upon the tree. Let's pray. Our Christ, we are thankful for your suffering and dying and the mocking and ridicule that you endured. Thank you that you're the one who was, uh, had our sin imputed to you. You became sin who knew no sin, that we might receive the righteousness of God. We know, oh God, we need that clothing. We know that we need that garment of white. And we know that we cannot wash it ourselves. We're thankful that we can wash it in the finished work and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blessing it is to dwell among uh, with you. Thank you for the promise we shall dwell with you forever with no one. We will not be able to sin in the new heavens and new earth. Thank you, O God, that you dwell with us now by the spirit because of his finished work. And thank you, O God, that we see your love for us. O God, we confess we do not understand your love. We don't understand your salvation as much as we ought. But we're thankful that you reveal these things to us that you speak in baby talk to us concerning all that you've done for us, who you are and what you've done. So we ask, God, you help us to behold our King, the one who sits in the heavens even now. Thank you that death did not defeat him. Thank you, O God, that he, even though he was buried, he was raised and ascended on high. Thank you that he sits right now at your right hand and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we pray, O God, while there's still breath, there's still hope for many here. We pray, O God, that you would save souls. Show them their sin and show them their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. May they believe and accept and rest and receive upon the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe upon him and be saved. And thank you, O oh God, that you are pleased to save. Thank you, God, that you're pleased to work. Thank you, O oh God, we see your kingdom advance in this way. And we pray, O oh God, that for all your people, we would behold our Christ and our King and look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. So be with us now as we go out into the world. Give us strength from on high to do what is right in your sight and give us a discipline to set our eyes before you. Help us by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.